Are we there yet? 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 I just saw an exit called Zizix. Are we there yet? relax. We're almost there. Be patient. This might be the most meaningful vacation of your life. We'll make it just in time to see Mystere at Treasure Island, the cirque that probably is what brought your schoolmate Dasha's parents to America. And then tomorrow, it's Andre Agassi versus Pete Sampras in a so-called friendly at MGM. We got tickets from Agassi's Armo jeweler dad. And tomorrow night, Julio Iglesias at Caesar's Palace. All the women I've loved before. You've heard his cassettes in your grandmother's car a million times. Now you get to see the last girl crush of her life on stage. The tiger queers at the Mirage? Maybe next time. But MGM has a whole theme park we'll go to on Saturday. Remember, this is 1993, and Vegas is trying out a short-lived, family-friendly campaign. So that means lots of arcades, too, not just the ones at the Circus Circus, which we'll go to, That's where your dad stayed his first trip as an immigrant kid in the 70s, and it hasn't totally gone ghetto yet. But it's not like you need those arcades, do you? Everyone told you there's nothing for a kid to do in Las Vegas. But you didn't believe them. And guess what? You're gonna be right. It all starts the moment the city appears in the distance. There is nothing like driving into Vegas for the first time on a Friday night in 1993. Not a care in the world. Driving in that dark, endless desert after you had your first In-N-Out Burger in Barstow. And then suddenly seeing, out of nowhere, this gleaming paradise of light.
everything about Las Vegas. Everything. You hear commentary and critique from the elders about which hotel sign is their favorite, which entrance is the classiest. Light seems limitless here. And it seems to be shining on you, almost like you're a star, no matter who you are, in the Vegas lights. The boulevard itself, with its dream hotels, is magic. But you'll also pass through the overwhelming tunnel of light that is the original strip in downtown on Fremont Street. The question you will ask yourself at my age is why nobody gets excited about the lights in Vegas anymore. Too many lights in the home, perhaps? Whatever it is, we seem to have lost a very sweet and harmless cliché by forgetting about those Vegas lights. Now that huge marble MGM lobby, you'll see your gambler grandfather slide over a $20 bribe to the receptionist for a better room, or maybe it was 320s. While they check in, you watch the ads all over the Jumbotron screens for Tom Jones. From now on, he's going to be your personal Mr. Las Vegas, and your gateway to him was indeed a very Las Vegas song where the message is whatever bullshit you're feeling is not unusual. It's not unusual at all. Those jaunty-ass horns are telling you to stop moping and get back out there and roll the dice. Or try some longer odds at the nightclub or order a fancy steak and go see a show and throw your underwear and key at the singer and leave the light on for him when you go to sleep, just in case. And so the Carltonification of Filthy Armenian begins. Pretty soon, you too will be a black Republican in Bel Air who adores Tom Jones. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me cry. I wanna die. As everyone goes off to gamble, you tour the giant casino floor with grandma. The slot machines. Not ding 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 like today, but because back then it was real coins spitting out of the machine. All the machines. And surprise, surprise, the coins were sexier. All the ladies scooping coins into these buckets and lugging the buckets around the casino floor like that chicken jungle book with the water bucket on her head. I think that's a little sexier and a little more Lindy than the current system where the machine prints out a parking ticket 
with some numbers on it. And the rain-like sound. You're gonna miss those coins one day. You're gonna miss those coins one day. And it wasn't just quarters. The dollar machines used to spit out half dollar coins. Half dollar coins, which you barely even see in the real world. So silver dollars people play longer in the coin era they have more fun on those coin machines you could only play up to 400 yanks an hour and now that it's fully digitized they say it's up to 1300 an hour so people aren't lying when they say the machines used to give more they did by now it's 2 a.m but your first night in Vegas is not over. You're going to settle down with Grandma at the 24-hour coffee shop restaurant at the casino. And you're going to order buffalo wings. And they're going to be perfect. And you're going to fill out some Kino cards. And you're just going to exist among the action. And soon you're going to learn that every hotel on the Strip has one of these restaurants. Open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, 366 days a leap year. Where you can comfortably order a plate of plump and juicy buffalo wings with ranch dressing and clam chowder, and Caesar salad at any hour of the day. And when you read one day that the reason Howard Hughes moved his entire operation to a Vegas hotel was that he wanted to be able to get a sandwich at 3 a.m., you will understand. It's 3.30 a.m. by the time you go to bed and you have no interest in going to sleep. Four hours later, you wake up. And now you have your first cup of coffee at the Oz Buffet. And boy, do you love that cup of coffee. You've been drinking beer since you were three, but coffee is the real grown-up drink. And boy, do you love it. You need cream and sugar for now, but you sure do love that cup of coffee. And you love the buffet, the concept of buffet. And for some reason, other than the coffee... You're going to remember the gravy most of all. Thanksgiving in April. You are on this trip with a side of the family that will soon become estranged forever. Because just as the Wild West can turn street merchants into kings and Agassiz into icons, it can turn brothers into crooks. Now, are there any signs of the coming family crime in their behavior here? Nope, none that you can see. A casino is for greed what a bathhouse is for lust, a place where all self-deceptions are left in the locker room, all pretenses are gone, and people are naked with their sin. Guess what? It's not that bad. As you're going to learn one day in the bathhouse... So you shall see on this trip that the flagrant, vulgar, honest, free-for-all arena is not nearly as scary as it sounds. For most people, not all, but most, the casino bathhouse does not at all bring out their worst. Not even close. And if you're in the right city at the right time and for not too long, a condition can even be reached where life in that setting is actually beautiful, friendly, Fun. 
And of course, it's entire. It's the entire ambition of Las Vegas. Ever since Bugsy Siegel and Kirk Corian after him and Steve Wynn, to be always the right city where it's always the right time for this kind of fun with plenty of oxygen and no clocks or windows to tell you otherwise. So enjoy Las Vegas before your mother's side of the family is brutally torn apart. Because already by the next time you come here, just a few years down the road, the lights will be just a little bit dimmer. On this next tune, while we're reminiscing here, I would like for you to pay attention to the lyrics, not so much to my singing or the band. Of course, I think they're wailing out there, though. How about a big hand for them? Give them a big hand. A little swing. Jeremy? Thank you. Thank you, but now we're going way down in the alley. Way down in the alley. What's there for a kid to do in Vegas? At one point, that question will be posed to you in reverse. At one point, your friends will ask you why you'd ever waste a trip to Vegas without intentions of getting wasted and partying hangover style to the absolute limit. And you'll try to answer this question in a pretty unconvincing way. Until one day, it'll occur to you, around September 2022, that when you go to Vegas, sometimes all by yourself, with nothing but a family man agenda, all by yourself, where the fun is confined to poker and betting on football games and steaks and buffets and pool and seeing a nice show, spectacle, as B.E. likes to say, you're just, you're going to realize, you're just trying to relive the adulthood of your childhood. Because Vegas, the very first trip to Vegas was a place you witnessed grown-ups being free. Swinging 60s, here I come, baby, yeah! There's a handful of trips following this one, while you're technically underage, before you hit 21, a number that symbolically ties Vegas and America beyond any shadow of a doubt, before you hit 21, a birthday you will naturally spend in Las Vegas seeing Elton John and winning some money at No Limit Texas Hold'em, there are two more childhood trips that will cement the city's meaning for you. The second one is the trip where you gamble for the first time at age 16 on Thanksgiving weekend in 2001. Thanksgiving in November this time. A little impromptu boys trip with your dad, bumper to bumper traffic the entire way. Took you seven and a half hours to get there that Friday. You wear an old man blazer and successfully play the Wheel of Fortune quarter slots at the MGM and win a total of $150. And they were still spitting coins at that time. And most importantly, you will see B.B. King absolutely kick ass at the Tropicana at the age of 76. And you'll become blues-pilled forever. Oh, 
I love the way she spread her wings. Yours got a sweet little angel. I love the way she spread her wings. Yours when she spread her wings. I get your everything. You know, I ask my baby for a nickel, and she gave me a twenty dollar bill. And then there's the third trip, your final trip as a quote-unquote child in 2004. There's going to be the trip to the giant libertarian conference called Freedom Fest. Freedom Fest. Freedom Fest. It was one of the very first ones, maybe the second one ever. Now, you may not know this yet, but at this point, you are long into being a libertarian. And at Freedom Fest, you're going to meet Bill Bradford, the founder of Liberty Magazine, who published your first essay in a grown-up journal when you were 17. And you're going to meet Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon, the original disciples of Ayn Rand, before they later became your friends. And you're going to hang out with Stephen Cox, the filthy professor, always something to cherish. And you're going to see Penn Jillette munching down some sort of pasta salad at the Paris Hotel. And you're going to see Dinesh D'Souza make his joke about how, if I knew the lecture podium would be this wide, I wouldn't have worn any pants. That sounded like Jordan Peterson, but whatever. And people are going to laugh. And you're going to see John Stossel back when he was a thing. And you're going to meet Charles Murray, author of The Bell Curve, and a more recent book at the time called Human Accomplishment. And he'll talk about how he's got some poker books up in his room right now, and they aren't working. And you'll get ripped off by a prostitute who just had a boob job and only jerks you off after you give her dollars in cash. And at one point, in the middle of the constantly blue Paris casino... You will see a man in very blue jeans and cowboy boots just leisurely take a seat and sip a bottle of beer at the casino bar like it's the middle of the day at 5 a.m. And you'll meet David Bowes of the Cato Institute for the second time, and he'll tell you that he doesn't like Las Vegas. He much prefers a city like San Francisco that you can walk in. And you realize, fuck. Now I gotta explain to these people why Las Vegas is not only the most libertarian city, it's also the most unapologetically American city. 21. Just as libertarianism for all its vulgarity, for all its lack of sophistication and nuance, libertarianism 
is the most American, perhaps the only American, political ideology. An ideology that only named itself after the wide-open America that everyone knew was over, was shattered by the First World War. An ideology that rose as a tribute to the individual liberty and not just tolerance, but hospitality of the eccentric that was lost forever. An ideology that is a memory of a time when grown-ups were free. And 18 years later, you will come to Freedom Fest again to do an episode of your podcast with Glenn Greenwald for the Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. And Freedom Fest will be bigger than ever now. And they'll have the fattest lineup of speakers yet. They'll have John Cleese as a keynote. And Zuby and Rand Paul and Steve Forbes and Ben Stein and James O'Keefe. And Andrew Yang, that pile of retweets in a trench coat. And they'll have Dr. Robert Malone and the other anti-vax rockets. And they'll have Nick Gillespie, the longtime editor of Reason Magazine, who you accidentally bump into at check-in. He's wearing his trademark black leather jacket. And at his Reason booth, you bump into John Stalliano, a.k.a. the Buttman, pornographic star of the hit franchise The Adventures of Buttman, and current owner of Evil Angel Films, where he was the last man in the United States to be prosecuted for obscenity just 12 years ago. And you talk a little shop. And you meet a whole bunch of other people, hear a whole lot of voices at the Mirage. And they are kind people. They are kind voices. Kind, curious, and passionate. And they remind you what you always liked about these people, what makes libertarians so American, what makes them so essential to preventing this country from erupting in a volcano of puritanical idiocy. Everybody loves to shit on libertarians, left and right, because it's easy. Because libertarians can be dorky, corny, and naive, and because D.C. career libertarians especially have been so disappointing and conformist and intellectually AWOL the last six years. But ultimately because for people who thirst for power, especially and even bitter losers who thirst for it desperately on their computers, completely in vain as a hobby, a hopeless hobby, there is nothing more triggering than somebody who has no desire for power. Not because they don't believe in human greatness and limitless potential and all that, you know, the incredible stuff, but simply because they are fundamentally decent and modest. The baby killer enemy of your Shaniqua's Fetus Defense Agency is more tolerable 
than a libertarian. So, what else is there for a kid to do in Las Vegas? Whatever it is, it doesn't seem like it's going to stay in Las Vegas. Going to the Sahara, baby. Surprisingly good. Yeah. It's, okay. it's very ASMR, but it's, yeah. but as long as there isn't like weird signal yeah. interference, it's really yeah. good. That's the other thing. Uh, well, Does I know what ASMR is. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I am one of those people though. I ASMR drives me insane. Like it makes me so tense and so upset. Well, I don't want to hear it. I know it's supposed to, but for some people it doesn't work. It's like it does the opposite. The best uh, ASMR story I heard, and I forget the name, but my girlfriend was talking about how there was a uh, uh, a uh, famous ASMR woman who uh, 
gave a talk before the election in, t- in 2020, or she did a YouTube thing where she was like, "Hey, relax. Whatever happens, you know, talking ASMR. Yeah. It's like it's going to be. Yeah. It's going to be okay. We'll get through it. Everything. Right. And then people are like, "How dare you say that? Because <laughs> this is the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Blah blah blah. And so then she had to give a an apology in ASMR. <laughs> and it's like the greatest thing in the world. Where she's like, "I'm so sorry." So it's like, you yeah. Know, a forced apology yeah. hostage video in ASMR. She wants to know if I'll meet you. You have my cell phone and whatnot, so if, if we're not right here, text me. I don't really need to see Judge Kaczynski on stage. Alex Kaczynski? Alex Kaczynski. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think he's judge anymore, right? Yeah. This John is the... You will be the last person to ever be me too, right? You got me too? No, no. He will I, never I, I, be I, I, because you What? I was in a bad mood when somebody was producing a Yeah. That was a couple years ago and that floated away. Literally went on Twitter and lied about But it didn't stick. I mean because he's the most he's the most sexually honest man in America. So there's never any pretense that there's never any false pretense that there's yeah, well, and he's also not a bad person, <laughs> right? So, but it's just like uh, that's why because Kaczynski got me too. He got, he got, I mean, he got pushed into a car. Yeah, supposedly he showed some girl porn, and he's like kind of creepy and stuff. Which is, I don't know how true that is or not. Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Creepy is a very, very uh, vague uh, barometer if you creep. Because creepy this can, is the Armenian in your, in your talk. Well, right? Yeah, but the filthy Armenian. Yeah. Well, I mean, creepy is a, there's a, you know, because I, yes, I, I'm perfectly aware of creepy, and you know it when you see it, but also, it's a kind of thing you could just say about anybody. Yeah, it's nothing they can Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So. And, they, and it is said about anybody. When it, I have seen it okay, said yeah, about yeah, anybody. Yeah, no, no. And there are times where it's like, you know, if you are in control of somebody and you're being creepy, that's different than if you are a stranger. If you're a stranger and you just rub them yeah. the wrong way right. or you've got a weird uh, manner about you. It's, it's um, not proper to lose your power in the world. For personal interest or whatever. You have power over somebody, that's what you that's what you do. That's the essential why why it has some value. Somebody because in my business in Hollywood, people who don't know agents, whatever they have sex with the girls are represented and they trade favors for value But it didn't happen that much and I've told people for years in my company we have no casting couches here. Right. What company? What's your company? Evil Evil Angel. It's an agency? Oh, Evil Angel. Okay. He is the Fellini of... Okay, so... The old... Oh, so it's like vintage cinema. There's a storyline or is it more just a... John recreated porn for the video uh, like VCR era. Oh, so you're he broke the fourth wall, so which is a little bit disturbing. Yeah, I keep looking for the fifth and sixth wall. I know, I know. But and the back wall. Yeah. So you know, you know I just want plexiglass. I don't know. I'm like, uh, keep me away from that wall. But but then, so he did all of that. 
And then when did the Fashionistas come out? 2001. Fashionistas is a movie and, and VHS that came out a couple months before the DVD in 2002. Yeah. This is like a four hour epic, which. Right? It was I mean, short. It was only four hours and 38 minutes. Yeah. And it was like on two or four DVDs, uh, or rather VHS. Same genre? Yeah, no, well, Fashionistas was. Uh, my read on Fashionistas was that if, um, you know, when you look at Last Tango in Paris, right? Yeah. Which was the beginning of a kind of potential for like hard sex in Hollywood, like X rated yeah. Hollywood movies that were about sex and hard like, sex. Hard yeah. sex. Yeah. Like if, if that had continued being a live thing, right. it would have it would have ended in Fashionistas, which is this incredibly dirty porn movie that has a, a real storyline and it's about a fashion designer and existential angst and bonded. I mean, it's like... I have to watch this. It's a fantastic movie that won what, like, like Titanic, okay, you know, okay, Titanic okay. won like Somebody 11 Academy this Awards. About this. The most acclaimed adult film ever and it's not true. But I wrote yeah. that because I had to win all these awards by the time the yeah. DVD came out. What's the most acclaimed adult movie? Um, I think Pirates won one Oh, yeah, yeah. So Harvey's historical epic. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was that a pir no, pi Pirates no. of the Caribbean no. spoof? No, you see, this guy doesn't know. Yeah, no, you really. I'm not. Porn, porn I'm, was a high-budget movie done by video, um, by. Uh, well, I know Deep Throat and stuff like that, but I'm yeah, not an expert. Yeah. I know, I'm just... Pirates, was it, didn't Phil Harvey and Adam and no, Eve? No, Adam like and Eve didn't do... Uh, it was a uh, digital playground. Oh, okay. And this guy was trying to do legitimate yeah. stuff. But it was like a high production quality. quality. What was the budget but on it's that? Got, but Pirates has got just a stupid story like almost all porn movies. Yeah. I thought it was yeah, Fashionistas is a legit erotic thriller. No. It's an... Okay. Well, maybe it was a thriller. No, I'm, I, I, I use thriller because that's neurotic. Neurotic 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 thriller, maybe. I, I think that, yeah. that that's a legitimate genre to do neurotic thrillers, but no, it's not. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, there are moments in it. Did you watch it or did you watch yeah. it? Thanks, you guys. Keep did you watch it and then some, or did you just watch it? I shot a 35-millimeter yeah, no, I mean, film. I watched it because it's, I you know, I'm not like a porn connoisseur or anything right. like that, but this movie... When I say it had a plot, like it was about characters that had internal lives, and it, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a genuinely fascinating movie. Like it was, yeah, it was, and it had great music, it had really interesting cinematography, and it's as filthy as a fucking movie can be. Right. You know? 35 millimeter. 35 millimeter, that's impressive. Porn business is not common. It wasn't common. Yeah. There were only a couple of 35s, a few 60 millimeters shot that year. And, and Evil that, Angel, if I can be John's hype man, because you should talk to him separately yes, and at I'd length. Love to. I'd love he to. was kind of, it was kind of like, if I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like United Artists in the early days where he created an ownership thing where he helped you know, different producers and directors kind of distribute their material. Oh, no, so it was like they owned it and all that. Most most porn companies are top down. The people right. that tap the owners tell the directors that work for them what yeah. to shoot. I didn't want to do that, but I had some friends who I thought did pretty good movies, and I wanted to make my own movies. So I and most 
of the people that I knew, yeah. Rockwell's and Freddie, John Leslie, you know, so they were capable of producing their own movies, but they didn't, weren't really good at doing the business side, collecting the money and marketing of the product. They could create good product. So I market the product for them, keep a percentage of the gross sales, and that was what Evil Angel is, and what it is now again, although for two years... And then he was the subject of what I hope, but I doubt will be the last large federal prosecution for obscenity. Yes, they tried to in D.C. They, what they tried this? him in D.C. All lawyers indicted for obscenity. Yeah. So what was the case? Well, that hit the That's movies, it. and it wasn't his movies. Right. The movies he was distributing right. were filthy. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in the category of obscenity, but they, mean. these were like fetish okay, they, films. They chose these films because yeah. of the, there's some unhealthy aspect to the obscenity laws. Although they did try to get me for gangbang my face in Alabama, but yeah. they didn't go after that. No, in Alabama, that's just called Tuesday. You were trying to butt in on their yeah. local, you know, their yeah. lo if, the kind of local that, racket. If that prosecution had actually happened, but apparently the people of Alabama don't like the federal government, and they would have yeah. forced the jury and everybody to watch these. So movies. you would want to live in a state's decided. rights, not about segregation, but about sexual fetish. Right, where the federal oh, government doesn't get to dictate uh, local standards. Separate do, but equal goals. Like that. Yeah. I do think the federal government has overstepped its bounds in many, many ways, especially in education, but in every way. So his, this obscenity trial was a huge deal in D.C., and the federal government was so fucking incompetent that they tried him in D.C. because, yeah. you know, local standards prevail, right. and it was like basically the prosecutors were too lazy to travel to a place where they might win. But then, and again, correct me, they, the case, the, the feds tr showed their case, they presented their case, they were not even able to show that anybody had downloaded the, consumed the material in D.C. When they tried to show it in court, they couldn't work the... judge said, we're only going to show one star per movie. I know you're supposed to show the whole movie. Yeah. The way the obscenity law... Yeah, is that it's the whole it's, it's work. The whole, the artwork as a whole has to be judged. So all the BTS yeah. and everything yeah. like that. No, he just wanted to show one scene. Because 10 out of 12 of the jurors were black. Jason shot a scene where he got a net sports and from Germany. And she uses the N-word on this black guy as a fetish. Right. I was just going to say, I think, yeah. Milk infos. He's, yeah. He shows up with a milkman delivery thing. That's a, about a gentler, kinder America. Where yes. milk was delivered yes. door to door. Where milk was considered the, 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 the essence of life. Yeah, and, you know. yeah the essence oh, no. of life. Yeah, the essence of life. And home and delivered. Sin, by the way. Yeah. I won't tell you. I'll tell you about them later. Well, in yeah. any case, they couldn't. They their their case was so bad when they finished. The judge was like, the trial's over. Like he didn't even get to present a defense. Right. It was like they, he just threw it out. He just. Which, in a way, is a curse. It's not technically thrown out as a technical yeah. acquittal. Oh. Because no rational jury would convict based on this evidence. Partly because they didn't know how to capture a goddamn trailer on the. Yeah, no, it's insane. On the, but what was the, what was the, the reason office where we had like 40 copies of things because somehow somebody sent a box to us. Yeah. <laughs> they should have. It'll become. Yeah. It'll, your reason offices will become like a second screening room 
for the right, yeah. obscenity. Uh, well, so what was the, what's, what kind of bullshit political impetus was behind this? It was the George Bush uh, anti-obscenity text. John, uh, John Ashcroft. Ashcroft, oh God. I don't know if Ashcroft was involved or not. He might have been. Yeah, what I started was, under him. Probably, he was attorney general when it yes, started. Yeah. Because it was a payback to the religious right for helping George Bush get elected. Yeah. Or re-elected yeah, yeah. in 2004. Right. So I had told, I want to remind you of this, and I will until you are, no, one of us is dead. No, but um, I had said early on, at some point, I said, you should have done, we were, I remember Michael Easy of Reasons Publishing, and I were talking with John in Malibu or something, I was like, you should do a bunch of porn movies where you wrap them explicitly in politics so that you cannot be prosecuted. You should take like a character who is named John Gashcroft, who is right. the attorney general who has raised the you know assemblies of God or whatever, and he realizes in order to break the porn industry, he has to go undercover, but he gets in too deep, and it's just a series of humiliations of John Gashcroft, and then you couldn't be prosecuted because it would be political speech. Political speech. Now, here's a question. And John was like, no, that's crazy. Well, here's the question. No, it wasn't crazy. Would you be able to do that about AOC? Because that uh, yeah. would move units. She's hot. She's, hot. Yeah. She's begging for it. I'm telling you, there's a lot of people. Well, she's begging for something because she's constantly. You're gonna get. You're gonna get me too. Yeah. I know, but I'm comfortable with this. Okay. I'm saying that she's begging for satire. She's begging for satire because she's constantly posting little sob stories online, trying to make herself the victim. And so that's when I say she's begging for it. I just mean that you find yourself perfectly, sir. I have no exactly what I'm talking about. No, I'm. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I speak as I'm. I'm homosexual, so I speak from a objective vantage point. You know, I'm not. Now, are you, you don't a have any sexual interest in OAC? No, I don't. No, I just no. I really don't. I wish I honestly. I wish I did just so I could exercise my contempt for her in some imaginary way. But I, I don't. I just, I just want it to end. You know, uh, the AOC era has already run its course for me. Like I'm, I'm not amused by it. Anymore. What are, what are your politics? Libertarian. I'm yeah. libertarian conservative. I mean, I, I don't. I, I. Uh, used to identify politically with much more passion, but now politics just doesn't mean very much in my life. And the most important thing for me is free speech, which has completely gone through the window the last 10 years, uh, opposing everything about the Liptard Tens and what they've done culturally to freeze free expression, free thought, free association. Just to push back on that a little bit, because I, you know, I, I agree, you know, there is cancel culture, it exists, there are, there's a broad attempt to delegitimate certain types of speech and expression, but you know, uh, kind of as a matter of history or uh, in practice, like you, I mean, you look, you snuck into this conference, you're using this equipment, you can have a podcast, um, you know, that goes out to as many people as are interested Certainly. in it, like, in a way there's more free speech possible than ever. There is a certain um, there is a definitely a black, like this, thanks to the podcast format, there's this black market for ideas, I think, and for voices and expand. I've met and I've, you know, some of the, the stuff I listen to most is popular in the black market, not so much the regular market. When I say the black market, I just mean non-mainstream, um, a 
lot of it has been like emerged through anonymous. I don't like anonymity at all, but it's been forced on some people. And I mean, like the ones that have become popular through their Twitter followings, through without any sort of institutional support, right? right. Any sort of is you know just independent voices that have found an audience. I mean, I can name a few of them: Jack uh, Mason, the perfume nationalist, is one. He's this uh, does a podcast pairing media and perfume and politically incorrect ideas. Uh, uh, you know, just out of the blue. Red Scare is another. You may yeah, know about yeah, Red Scare. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, these are not... This, this, this wasn't propped up through Fox News and right, appearing yeah, on Tucker. Yeah. Or, or whatever. The, or the New York Times. Or the New York Times. Or anything. Yeah. yeah, or the Paris Review. Or, Can I ask then, um, because one of the things I'm interested in, and John, I'd be curious, and if, if you have no interest in this, just tell me to shut up. But I'm very interested. No, no, but what, what is... You know, what changed, what changed at a certain point, and I... I think, like I, I was lucky. I'm lucky to be alive and involved in Reason at the time that I was. But like, some at some point in the '90s, the mainstream kind of disappeared. Like, you know, there's still a mainstream and there's still a dominant kind of corporate right. uh, media enterprise and everything. But like, in music, in publishing, in uh, in movies, in media, even in porn, it just became. Like, you know, like, you didn't need permission to get stuff out. Like, I read a lot about things in the 50s and 60s where, you know, if you wanted, if you came up with a, a story and you wanted to get it out to people, you had to publish it somewhere and then mail it out or this or that. Like, it was just so, yeah, and now it's like, you can just You can just put it out. The question is, who's yeah. going to see it? How do you get people to hear to yeah, see well, it? Well, and what, what happened even more than, like, because there were always zines and things like like that in the yeah. 60s and you could mail it out and get away with it but then because of the internet like in the 90s and then going into the 2000s suddenly you could go from being a nobody to you know being right. Glenn, uh, Glenn Reynolds at Instapundit right uh, you I could become Joe Rogan eventually or yeah. something you know like where uh, Glenn Greenwald who spoke here yeah. you know was blogging on Blogger Blogspot and then got picked up by Salon which itself yeah. was an alternative media publication which was good at the time and then yeah. it's gone down the shitter, but like you, can, you know, it's like it's amazing. So no, I mean, it's it, we have this weird, weird dichotomy of at the same. At one, on one hand, uh, mainstream, the mainstream press colluding with basically the uh, one party in power to exert censorship on everyone and everything, and then on the other hand, all this technological yeah. kind of anarchy of yeah, cornucopianism or, yeah, or something, something, yeah. and, and these things have kind of. I, I think I think it's unfortunate that I mean the '90s there was still a lot going on and there was a, still a lot of variety in the quote-unquote mainstream, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, not by numbers based compared to now, but in terms of just by by nature, by yeah, yeah. by kind, like you could get stuff made that, but both in the cinema level, at the TV level, even at the TV level. I think part of your problem, if I may call it that, is like you you make documentaries or narrative films. Well, both. Yeah, it, I mean, and Hollywood is still kind of shitty, right? Totally. Like, Hollywood and academia are like lagging indicators. They're still kind of, uh, uh, you know, academia is uh, way behind. But right. but yeah, but, but Hollywood's I mean, they're, they're frozen. They're medieval kingdoms. Yeah, and I mean, change is coming to them, but 
yeah, they still have like a lot of money and a lot of power and they're fixed because yeah. they have guilds, because they have money, because they have power. And they've gotten worse versus, I mean, when I yeah. say worse, I think there's actually some rays of hope in the last, literally in the last year in the movie industry. But, but in the 2010s, they kind of, one little, uh, one ideology followed another and basically it's all under the diversity umbrella and it all became about diversity and yeah. every comedy like had its, has yeah. a gatekeeping, you know, it was like UCB was basically became yeah. the gatekeeper and diversity became the beginning and the end of comedy, right. um, which is just insane. Like, you know, it, it, you know what is the sad, and I'll say this because I know you're Armenian American, um, Bad News Bears, you know, so it came out in 76. Right. Then it was remade in like, I don't know, 2007 or 2006 with Billy Bob Thornton. And in the 1976 movie, which was rated like PG, had every manner of racial and ethnic joke. It was harsh. It was kids drinking on right. camera and stuff. The remake later totally cleaned up. The the uh, the alcoholic baseball manager played by Billy Bob Thornton is on the wagon and is drinking alcohol, non-alcoholic beer. The kids drink non-alcoholic beer at the end rather than chugging Miller. Yeah, the remake. No, the remake yeah, the in the odds. No, and the so only ethnic joke, the only ethnic joke that made it through was a joke of about Armenians, about an Armenian kid. Does that not tell you everything? Because the same yeah. thing happened with Trevor Noah. He used he used actually the phrase "filthy Armenian" as a punchline, mm -hmm. uh, because like there are these you know when it, there are these little safety ethnicities that because yeah. nobody gives a shit about. Right. You can just like sub in for the for the for the real joke you're trying yeah. to say. Well, that's the world we're living in now. You can't see sex on TV, so they 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 have like kind of pointless gore. There's nothing sexy on TV. Euphoria was an exception in season two. There was some good stuff in Euphoria, but overall, it's like for ten years ever since those a pair of what's her name's tits in uh, True Detective season one uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw True Detective yeah, season no, one there was well, that I, you know the, I just watched the first the new Star Trek which is on streaming only okay is there something raunchy there's, in there there's something really sexy I thought because Spock is it finally Spock and Kirk finally Spock get it on engaged, Spock is engaged to a Vulcan woman mm -hmm. and um, the Vulcan woman is trying to um, I don't know, there's some conflict going on. And in order to resolve this this conflict or make the bad guys realize that Spock is really got more human than Vulcan in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. He has this nurse that's been flirting with him for, for 12 months. I don't know if you know Anyway, <laughs> well, so they, they're, they're both together talking to the bad person or something like that, and they show just as, so they want to show that Spock is human, and they kiss. Now, Spock kisses the Vulcan woman, it's like a, it's yeah. a Vulcan kiss. Me and okay. Sam, my girlfriend, talk about a Vulcan kiss. Yeah. Yeah. But he looks like he opens his mouth and he kisses the blonde woman. It's a hot scene. Okay. Now, whether or not it's just not as explicitly sexual, but my impression of well, Star Trek from the 60s, we watched them all from the first time. Yeah. It was very sexual, but that was the 60s. Yeah. What they're doing today still has sexual content. Okay. I well, would listen. Not, I, I think streaming because it's on cable and because it's not you regulated. You know, you know, you know, the people are 
allows um, more freedom. Well, no, it technically it does. It's just that by the code that is the the, un, the, the unspoken code has kind of prevented that freedom from being realized. As uh, you know, a, uh, a show I'm thinking on Netflix was part of the Marvel universe. Jessica Jones. That was a dirty show. Oh, it I was. Mean, that, Jessica yeah. Jones. Okay. I, I haven't followed the Marvel. Yeah, but it had. Some, I mean, it wasn't explicit sex scenes, but they were pretty uh, hot and raunchy. Do they ever show? And is there ever? a case of the woman going down on the man because now if you notice it's always there's always pussy eating scenes very lifeless pussy eating scenes that are depicted but you can never see you will never see I mean I, I don't want to play you've got a stilted point of view I'm yeah, I mean you're I like you of course to you they're always like no, that, nobody wants to do that I know but I'm not saying that nobody wants to it's just that really is this the only form of sex that exists currently in the last 10 years I don't really think so yeah I'm very liberated they're full of shit guy coming to talk to us right now yeah. will not look pussy. You know, he says he's tried he? it. He doesn't want to do it anymore. It's, it's this barrier that some men have that they just don't want to go there. Is that, this is just the old cliche about Italian-Americans, right? No, he's Jewish. Oh, okay. Wow, well, there is. But there's a cliche about Italian-Americans it's not like in the literature. Yeah. Wait, I'm more concerned been? about it's it. It's in The Godfather. It's in The Sopranos. Ah. Joe Pepitone, the baseball, he has a whole chapter you, in his... My coach at Baseball yeah. Fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe Pepitone in his uh, memoir, Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud, has a whole scene, uh, like a whole chapter about that. Where we talked about not looking for Well, he, he did, but he hung out with mob guys who, and there he tells an anecdote where, uh, uh, you know, he was at some party and he did this publicly, and this, this guy goes to a mob club and says, You know, I saw Joe Pepitone going down on this woman, and they beat him up. Up, and then they talk to Joe, and they're like, Joe, we beat him up because he was lying about you because we know you would never do that. And Joe was like, you know, and I said, of course, yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I hate that. But then he's like, but secretly I do. And that's from like 1975. you got to read. Okay, but let, let, I have to check that out. Yeah. I, have, I need to ask you, since you would know, what percentage of women in your experience in the business world what percentage of women actually enjoyed uh, orally Pleasing a man versus obligatory. What percentage of women? Oh, that's an, well. I in my life, I had a girl much, who uh, was giving me a blowjob in the nineties, and she said, "You know, I really don't like doing it." So you're over, so you're zero percent in your life. But in, in the what about in the no no yeah one in one in one in fifty is not one in zero. Okay, one in fifty. So that's two uh, percent. That's ninety-eight percent enjoyed. Right. Well, no, I would pretty good. Right. Say more like ten percent. Ten really enjoy it. Oh, only ten percent like don't enjoy it. Women. An obligation. The question is: Does somebody get a turn? Does it turn you on to see? I think it has to do with the recognition and the idea that that's a symbol of arousal. Right. And that's important to people. That's true. You know, you're really turning the person on. True. But that's still uh, that's still removed. Wait, let's turn this on you. Oh yes. You said you're gay. Yes. Um, like so, it has. Gay porn or the representations of gay male 
homosexuality, yeah, yeah. have those become uninteresting and boring because they're trying to be diverse or like normalized? Not so much diverse, uh, but the, the diversity thing is not, I mean, because you can find whatever you can feed, right, whatever you right, want. Yeah. Um, it has become, the, the overall porn scene has become boring because, first of all, professional gay porn is boring generally because it's very, like, you, nobody wants to see a little tea bag going into a cup. Like, it's very clinical. There was this porn playing recently in someone's apartment. You can surmise why I was there. And the sound was off. And it, it looked like, when, the, when the, you couldn't see the genitals, it looked like you were watching a construction scene. It was just, like, so laborious and, like, and it was like, this is, this is horrible. Well, what if you were 17 years old or 18 years old? Would it have looked horrible? What if it was the second or third porn movie you'd ever seen? No one is, no one is watching that at, at 17 and 18. Nobody's watching their second or third porn movie. I mean, we're, we're, we're Some way... Some of us nerds... I like are, amateur stuff. I like, I like the... I like the, the, the golden era was Tumblr and Xtube, like 2010 to 2015, when you had all these amateur things. Now, the other problem is everyone's a whore because of OnlyFans. So everyone has become a whore, and their bedrooms have these ring lights on them, and that's not good either. You would think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, it's amateur. It's not, because everyone's a whore. There's no... You can't even find a, an amateur in real life anymore because they're all whores. You know what I mean? Not in I'm that a, culture. No, 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 I no. Wish I no but I'm just... Uh, so that's the problem, but it's not so much that there's... I've been fantasized that my life would be a lot easier if I was gay. Well, I'll tell you one way it would be. Gays love to suck dick. That's 100%, 99% of them loved, and that's probably the number one... Of all th things they like to do, that's number one on all. Wait, wait, why are you complaining then? You're like I'm concerned the about the state of the world. world. I'm concerned about America. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not. I don't live only for myself. I mean, wow, that's very generous. This is I, yes. I, if, the, if I don't look out for you guys, who the fuck is going to do it? The, the straight man so in America. So what do you think is, about? Uh, there's no straight people left anymore, like openly. You know what I mean? Like, there's like everyone's everyone's like in the straight people have to be in the closet about about. Their sexuality, you know. I don't agree with that. I mean, I understand where you're yeah. from. I'm obviously yeah. making this, yeah, I'm putting Different the cake. I think the gay culture has been spoiled because now you don't have the repression so much, so people are more free, and then. then to be willing to say yes more than women. They tend to like sex. They like everything, they as we've been discussing. Much, much more yeah, there is. However, the, the 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 trend in the gay world has also been toward LGBTQ, all the uh, sexless stuff. All that stuff is sexless. All that extra letters, you know, with the LGBT alphabet becoming a Google suggested password. Huh? The Q, the Q is a, is the loophole because most Q's are straight. Most yeah. Q's are like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a bisexual, you know, I'm a queer so, yeah, woman. I mean, yeah, so that, I mean, it just means you're trying to be interesting or you're trying to just, yeah, or politically denormalized. Denormalized or just politically woke. You're just trying to, you're giving yourself a completely undeserved little line item on the resume is what a lot of them are doing, especially in L.A., you know. So the old gay, raunchy world has been diluted a great deal, much to my dismay. And I, I'm a late bloomer. I mean, I didn't start being gay until I was 25. I didn't start thinking about it until I was 22. 
DC is what turned me gay, if you want to know. My one year in DC when I met you, it wasn't you specifically. It wasn't him? But it was the. Surprisingly, usually no. I have that effect on women. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're that yeah. Well, you're, black, you're Johnny Cash, yeah. uh, you know, now famous style of black, which oh, I want yeah. to ask you about where, sure, where you sure. got the black style. Okay. Uh, the, the black yeah. leather suede. You were wearing a nice one with tassels when, when I yeah. saw you yesterday. Hey, we went to the Johnny Cash Museum in Nashville. That's right. I like Johnny Cash. I'm very nice. Oh, so yeah. are you inspired by Johnny Cash for I this look? I, I like yeah. Johnny Cash. Although I have to say, when I adopted the John, you know, all black. I mean, I liked old Johnny Cash, and then like grown. You know, I'm, uh, I was born in '63. Okay. So like, I started listening to music That's in the, the late sexuals. '70s and '80s, and Cash was terrible then. Like he was putting out songs like The Baron, which was like a shitty like sequel version of the Bo a boy named Sue. They were not good. He was not doing I his like best. I like the boy named Sue. Oh, no, that's good. That's from the 60s. Yeah, and like right. San Quentin yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. his early country stuff. And then when he looked up with Rick yeah, Rubin I, I at the end was phenomenal. About. But he did like a lot he of slick, lot of really uh, you know, Nashville crap when, uh, when, I, you know, when I was first listening to him. Oh, so Rick Rubin is the one who did his America albums yeah, at the end. Right. Okay, American Those are good. Wow, yeah, I was just yeah, listening to them the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and they, I mean, the Johnny Cash Museum was... Uh, it's phenomenal. an interesting museum yeah. because of his history. And, you know, I got to go next time. I, I'm somehow skipped it the one time I've been in Nashville. Yeah, well, Nashville, I mean, is fascinating because I country love music is so much more interesting than the kind of critique of it by, you know, coastal elites. It's right. Like, by people like me. Yeah. Yeah. But I like, I like, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a, I like, old, I'm one, I have the most basic bitch view of country, which is I like the old, I like old country. I like fucking Hank Williams. Mm -hmm. I like Johnny Cash, which is a little bit later. Yeah. I like Bill, well, uh, what's the guy that, um, Norm McDonald's friend, Billy Joe Shaver. Mm -hmm. uh, I, Norm McDonald talked him up and had him on his show, on Netflix show, and I checked him out. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I like that real shit. Yeah. And then, like, when I hear, like, pop country on the radio, where it's mm -hmm. kind of like Britney Spears, but with a little bit of right, a two-step, right, yeah. then I'm then I'm not really that into it. But, yeah. you know, that's a that's nothing, that's a, not an interesting view at all. <laughs> it's right, just right. the most, that's the most common coastal elite basic bitch view of country music. You know, but are you into any any of it still? Not particularly. No. But, so how did the, how did the influence of cash uh, well, reach your I mean, wardrobe? The reason why I started wearing black is mostly uh, um, when I, I during the eighties I enjoyed wearing black and I was kind of I was never like goth like you know wearing makeup and stuff but I like goth music and I like dark humor so I wore a fair amount of black but then when I knew I was becoming the editor of Reason I yeah. was uh, named a couple of years before I took over. Was like okay, well, I got to come up. You know, I first time I wanted to simplify my life, yeah. and I wanted to have a different look than like most political magazine editors. And I was like, oh, and my wife, uh, now ex-wife, you know, we like kind of cooked it up together. I'm going to wear black. Um, it's it also it you know it's a uniform. I like work uniforms like Andy Warhol or Jackson Pollock. Tom Wolf. Yeah, you know, and this is like an easy one that I could do. It's also a fat, so like black is slimming. I just yeah. told somebody. You've got a 
leather jacket. Yeah, recent. 110 outside. Yeah, uh, but it's like slimming. Like I, I just told somebody. You're, you know, you Robert, don't need slimming. You're a Robert perfect Smith of the Cure doesn't wear black because he's sad. He wears black because he's fat. Right. Okay. Like I was like, okay, so that it all added up. But uh, when I actually when I found out I was going to become editor of Reason, I was like, okay, this is pretty big. And I spent, I bought a leather jacket for like a black leather jacket for the first time, and it was yeah. something like 500 bucks, which is more. That was more than I had spent on a car. You know, so I was like, this is a big purchase for me. And yeah. I was like, okay, so, yeah. Famous black leather coat. And I figured, you know, like, I could I could go and get, like, you know, mediocre suits and have them be ill-fitting and look like every other... DC person. Yeah, and or I could just fuck it and, like, wear T-shirts and black leather and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. It's work. It's work because people so. talk yeah. about it. Yeah, people yeah. talk about your... I mean, they've always talked about it, but they... Yeah. Still talk about it, like uh, you know that you're the guy and you're the man in black. That's right. And there's some bullshit explanation on Wikipedia about how that represents your political, um, your right. political. Uh, no, but I mean I'm, I like dark humor and yeah, I have okay. a dark soul, so that's all good. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's just that, and then it, you know it just became an e it's easy. I don't have to think about it. How, what, when, where did you? What was your path to the libertarian world? I um, I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in New Jersey. And my brother, who's older than me, uh, went to college and started. He found reason, and he started sharing it with me. So I was reading that as I was just. This is the seventies. Yeah, this is late seventies, early eighties, and then I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. I liked it. Spoke to. My interest in individualism and nonconformity, it was rational, but it also was emotional in the sense of, like, you know, it was, it, they do a lot of outrage stories, you know, right. like, here is how, like, a well-meaning policy fucks people over, or a bad-meaning policy fucks people over. I was very interested in um, things like immigration. All of my grandparents were immigrants. So from I like open borders. From Italy? Uh, Ireland and Italy. My father's family was Irish. My mother's was Italian. Um, and uh, so immigration, drug legalization was a big thing to me. Freedom of speech was huge because I was into literature and music that was often, you know, either being challenged or had been. Yeah. So those were all kind of pre-existing kind of sensibilities. I and, you know, and then reason helped give me a uh, framework to understand how those things fit together and like that there was a whole worldview out there and a, a kind of um, intellectual and historical framework. Were you influenced by Ayn Rand? No. no. Uh, no and I don't say that with oh. anger. Yeah. Well, I was. I was. I was my brother, my older brother was and yeah. stuff, but like, I was, it's just I didn't, I never really encountered her work. I read Reason, I read Free to Choose by Milton Rose Friedman, mm -hmm. and that was, and then I was into like, uh, I was more into uh, beatnik literature, so like I liked Jack Kerouac okay. and the Beats and Allen Ginsberg, and by the time I started looking at Ayn Rand, I was older, and it just, it didn't appeal to right. me. So it never was a major issue. Right, right. Um, I just bought a copy of, I just found a nice copy of uh, Alan Ginsberg's letters uh, the other day, mm -hmm. uh, just by kissing. He's an interesting guy because he's obviously, uh, you know, Howell is a major uh, moment in post-war culture where there's an obscenity trial about it, but it's this really powerful individual expression to me, which is libertarianism 
is prior to free market capitalism. Like, you know, and I think free market capitalism is the best expression of libertarian values in economics. But, you know, Ginsburg, I think, was libertarian and he wanted to be an individual. He wanted to be able to express himself. And Howell did that. And then, you know, it led to a bunch of legal challenges, et cetera, that he then, he's a lifestyle liberationist, which I think is hugely important. He, at various points, was a tax protester. He protested the Vietnam War. He got kicked. I mean, I love this guy. Allen Ginsberg, you know, was, he was being, you know, his poetry was being suppressed by the government, by local governments in America. He went to uh, the Czech, Czechoslovakia and Cuba and got kicked out for speaking out for free speech there. Right. It's like, okay, that's, that's pretty yeah. intense. Yeah, no, that, kind of you do that in, you do that in, in Soviet footprint. You've done it. he was gay and he knew like yeah. being gay was, you know, was illegal. It was more illegal in Cuba and Czechoslovakia than it was in the U.S. where it was also illegal right. in the 60s. So. In certain places, yeah. Definitely yeah. more socially um, taboo in Eastern Europe. Yeah. In Russia. Right, right. To, to today. But so I like, you know, so I was into kind of literature and music. I liked punk and new wave and people who were pushing the envelope. Um, yeah, and you know, also with a sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, but then reading Reason, and then I went to grad school in the late 80s after working for a while as like a, a I worked at teen magazines and music magazines in New York and movie magazines and then I went to grad school for English this was the late 80s and it was the beginning of what became known as political correctness and I knew I was not liberal I knew I was not a progressive um, but I also knew I wasn't a conservative aesthetically or politically or intellectually and I realized like I needed to get serious about what was my ideology and that's really in the late 80s and reason was, you know, fundamental to this. Um, it helped me find, you know, kind of my ancestors, and I, you know, that's right. when I became libertarian. Right. And so, who are? Well, let's going deep. Let's go deep. In your view, who are like the first American libertarians? Not necessarily by. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Isabel. Pat I don't necessarily mean Isabel Patterson. Sure. Okay. And now you can bring Richard back, or let me. Um, I can't get him in here. But I'll, I'll come back. Oh, you know what? Here, bring him in. And if you're to bring him in on that, okay. I will. Yeah. Okay. But you got to come back. Yeah, I want to. I want to exchange info so I find you in LA. Really interesting life. I know. I know. I've well, been so um, yeah. So um, the first American libertarian I'm going to say is uh, Roger Williams, uh, the uh, founder of Providence, uh, Rhode Island, uh, who was a uh, 17th century. Puritan who left England and came over to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and then got kicked out uh, because he called out the theocrats there for teaching a Catholic theology and Catholicism was their big enemy. Yeah. And he escaped, famously escaped into the you know into the night of the of New England's winter. Ended up in Providence, or what became Providence, Rhode Island, bought property from the Indians, uh, and wrote a the first tract um, in favor of fully secular government in the English language. And he created a world in which individuals should be, have a right to express themselves through speech and religion, um, and like absolute you know freedom. Uh, and he also treated the Native Americans uh, with respect and uh, you know mutual cooperation. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, Roger Williams to me is like, from what he wanted was the right to worship God as he saw fit. And from that, he created a theory of government where, like, if I have this right, I even have to allow Catholics to have that right, and Jews and Mohammedans and all of them. It's radical shit. He's great. Um, So he's definitely there. Uh, There's a bunch of, I mean, people like Frederick Douglass, uh, also, you know, in terms of, like, self-ownership. Using that as an argument for yeah. as, his, as part of his propaganda for abolition was yeah. Well, and obviously. it's also like you know he he is an individual, and it, he took seriously you know the the promise in the uh, Declaration of Independence, like yeah. you know self ownership, and he you know he's also fascinating for a lot of different reasons, including at a certain point in his autobiography, he talks about how. You know, he was a slave. He had a, a, a mistress, a ma- a, the wife of a master, who taught him how to read. And then he read Irish um, separatist pamphleteers. And he said, when he read those, I choked up thinking about this, he realized what he wanted for himself and for blacks in America, which was the ability to be individuals and to be live their lives the way they wanted to. Right. And that act of empathy is powerful, and it's weird because he it gets used against... Sometimes people say, like, you can't empathize with different people's experience. He helped create the black argument for self-determination by reading about Irish separatists in the 19th century, right. which is kind of powerful, you know, kind of empathy and trans uh, transmission of cultural ideas. Yeah, trans-ethnic trans uh, inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me of what Richard Wright said. Mm-hmm. Richard Wright, of course, is a yeah. communist, but the, that's ex-communist. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, really he, powerful. Good. Yeah. Uh, but what he said about what he discovering H.L. Mencken, mm-hmm. where he said, like, has that line about how in, in, in uh, Native Son, right. about how, like, the, the, he learned from Mencken how you could use words as tools yeah. to battle power. Right, right. Then that's pretty powerful. I mean, yeah, to me, H.L. Yeah. Mencken is found is a foundational figure, as I'm sure. I, I, you know, I don't. I appreciate. I know. I understand why people like Mencken. I find his prose style terrible, over the top for you. Yeah, it just it's hard for me to get through. So, but I, I get that. Um, I do. He's uh, a know, maximalist. You yeah, know. I like. You know, uh, Richard Wright is interesting, and I uh, less him per se, but like existentialist. Like I ended up when I was in high school, I by accident stumbled across Camus. And kind of, you know, that created in me a sense of individualism that then libertarianism kind of fits in. You know, but but they're not quite the same thing. But I'm I'm kind of like an existentialist libertarian in a lot right. of ways. And then I also consider myself a postmodern uh, because I feel people like Friedrich Hayek is actually postmodern in the sense that I like libertarians or libertarian thinkers who emphasize the limits of knowledge rather than the extent of knowledge. And to me, that's the difference between modernism and postmodernism. Modernism, I identify with a kind of enlightenment ideology run amok where it's like we are, we have figured out how physics works, how biology Biology works, science, Politics, and we're going everything. to apply that to human society, and we can dictate every outcome. And to me, that's madness, and it's hubris. Hayek critiques that in books like The Counter-Revolution of Science, which, again, an accident, that's the first book of his I read. And I was like, you know, this is my guy. And then when I was in grad school and I started encountering Michel Foucault, 
like I realize there's a lot of similarities. I've heard, you know, I haven't read Foucault. I've heard that there, I've, people yeah. have been telling me recently how, how similar. How there's how certain commonalities, and towards the end of his life, Foucault died in the early 80s. Um, he, and in some of his last lectures, he actually told his students that they should read Hayek and Mises with special care because he was looking for critiques of state power as well as other forms of power. He, he never became a liberal in the European sense, but he really flirted with it. But for me, that is among the tributaries. You know, uh, it's like Foucault is there, Camus is there, Hayek is there, Mises. Um, you know, uh, a bunch of American writers who wanted to be individuals, uh, like you know, male and female. And it's like I love people who just kind of want. They want to be free to become who they are, to discover who they are, which changes over time. And then the, the genius thing is that, like, and this goes back to Roger Williams, they realize, like, they want that, and everybody should have that right. So you create a system right. of minimal control and coercion so that everybody has that. Right. You know? I mean, when you say when you say um, the limits of knowledge, I think that's, that speaks to what I've always most appreciated about libertarians, just at a human level, is is the humility. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's a that's a big thing too. Like, I, I I'm not. My point is that I don't think that we know half of what we claim yeah. think we know. Yeah. We don't know what the fuck we're talking about half the time yeah. and so all of these like big old hoary declarations of uh, how things should be right. are based on false knowledge most yeah, yeah. much of the time which is why I incomplete knowledge, incomplete knowledge. knowledge that is no longer applicable or something. right yeah. I mean yeah. and I you know that's that's always been you know we all have our young libertarian phase I, for me it, it appealed to me at a very young age because yeah. I'm growing up in LA it was a very subversive um, right. it appealed to my subversive uh, Were impulses. you a Randian then? I was, I was first, she wasn't the first. Uh, before her, I had already become red-pilled around 10th, 10th grade. I was reading like P.J. O'Rourke and Soul and that sort of thing. Um, there's others, there's some others in there. And then I, and then when I, her, the first book of hers I read was Capitalism. And so that was like, whoa, you know, psychedelic experience. And then I became a Randian for like the rest of my high school experience. And then that sort of, you know, I realized that that was its own kind of little world world with its yeah. limits and right. and I became interested in art and literature above yeah. politics and right. all of that kind of found a, a, a different context but I became yeah. friends with the Brandons um, yeah, yeah. Like being in LA and, yeah that's great um, uh, yeah so she was a major early influence yeah. and it's and it which is now you know exists in an artistic form although I, re I read Fountainhead for the first time ever I, I read everything but Fountainhead because I was like I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm sure I know what's in here I read like last year somebody for a podcast uh, the Fume Nationalist, who I mentioned earlier, invited me to read it, and I was quite impressed yeah. with the achievement of I the did, uh, This was about ten years ago. There were two serious biographies of Rand that came out. Anne Heller's was one, yeah. That's right, and then... Uh, God, it was like a business one. There was one that was like business -y. A goddess of the market, yeah. and I'm forgetting the author's name. It's more academic. They're both really good and serious. Um, and um, when I ended up talking to a writer for GQ or Esquire who was trying to figure out, like, why did people sort of shit about Rand and he like disliked her it was a slam dunk. they all do and I was saying to him though and again I'm not like a Rand fan but like she and Kerouac are the only writers from the 50s that people still name their kids after characters right people read these books and they drop what they're doing and they change right. their lives they do and like that has to be you know, and, and um, Kerouac also is considered like a sub-literate writer you know, he's not, that's right. typing it's not writing
writing. Right, right, right. That's, and it's, that's not writing, it's typing, yeah. because it's Truman Capote yeah. music. And it, but it's like, you know, that kind of dismissal on, like, aesthetic grounds is horseshit. My background in literary studies is, like, I'm, I'm a, uh, a kind of uh, audience response critic, where it's like, if something is moving people, the function of aesthetics is to understand why it does that, right. not to say, according to my pre-existing aesthetics, that's shit. Right. It's like, to understand that, and, like, Rand is speaking, and still speaks to people in a, in a, in a profound way, which I think is important. And, that, yeah. you know, it's that individualist. One thing I find fascinating about her is people like, you know, Oliver Stone, you know, who's a left-wing guy who loves uh, uh, the Fountainhead and yeah. Atlas Shrugged, and, like, so many left-wing people in Hollywood love Ayn Rand because they are creative geniuses, and they yeah. want to be free to create the world they want. Yeah. And we all are that, right? Yeah. That's kind of, that's a, you know, the whole point of politics for me is to create a world where most of all of us can do that with the least amount of damage to everybody else so like nobody is you know we're not killing each other and you know that to me is what libertarian political philosophy about pre-existing that I think libertarian I don't I don't even use it as a noun anymore I like using it as an adjective it's a predisposition it's a temperament it's a direction right and it's like I I have libertarian tendencies like I just want people to be more free to make choices in their lives. Well, and this is what, you know, uh, again, Mencken for me was yeah. an early influence yeah, yeah. that I hadn't looked at in quite a while. Yeah. I wrote a piece about it for the Weekly Standard like 2009. That was the last time I'd read it. Then I recently, due to kind of this libs of TikTok resurgence of and panic over drag queens and stuff, yeah. which is mostly online, but that's where I exist right. for, in terms of this podcast. So I, I, get, I get the brunt of it. I revisited Mencken and I, I read for the first time his Puritanism as a Literary Force right. essay from Prefaces, which and, and the, the pure, his Puritanism, you know, writings never, I never cared about them because in right. the early 2000s, we had yeah. South Park. It, it wasn't relevant. We had free speech for a brief yeah. window there. Um, but when I read his, when I read that, I was like, aha, this is why I love this man. Yeah. Because despite his own personal code of ethics and, you know, he was a fairly, fairly conservative kind of personal person, like uh, his, and his Teutonic sensibility. He was. He had the real libertarian spirit. He had the that the the Williams blood, as that song goes. Uh, and that was what like whether he was writing about Whitman's battles, Poe's battles, uh, the current battles. Um, and I realized, okay, this is a. If you remove the libertarian impulse from American politics, or the strain, or the you know the whatever that adjective needs to be applied to, we are one fucking witch hunt after another for four hundred years. It's fucking crazy. My, you know, my critique of uh, Mankin on that score is that the historical Puritans were not as exceptional or as bad as he said, but the the way the Puritans got used, and in many ways, the Puritans he's responding to were a creation of late 19th, early 20th century progressives, right? Who cast back and said, "This is a model for us," right? And it is about you know, kind of civic virtue, and it is about unanimity, and about like getting people to conform to a unified code of ethics that yeah. we're going to be enforcing. You know, he's right to be against that, and there is a Puritan impulse throughout American history. I think there are large numbers of people who are trying to do that now. Right, well, that's what the last 10 and years has been around. the right and the left. The right has a different version of it. The right has its little, yeah, the right has its little sex panic version that pops up every now and then. I don't think then. it's little. Well, I'm not, no, it's like, not, yeah, yeah. right now it's not little at all. Yeah. Um, 
it, it's obviously been and far it's from also little. like they hate I mean for me and here this may uh, explain a little bit more in a roundabout way some of my libertarianism like the current you know there's like the right wing is you know panicked over drag queens and grooming everything's yeah. a groomer yeah. they're you know they one temporarily it's about abortion it's their racism when it's not racism yeah. right? you know but what I was going to say is that their desire to stamp out critical race theory in public schools right at the top level like because you know up until like a couple of years ago conservatives were always like schools should be governed by the, at the most local level possible like right. funding should be their curriculum etc and then when they saw a story about America that being taught at public schools they were like we don't want that and we're going to crush it at the highest level possible yeah. that bothers me because like I, I grew up Catholic I'm you know I don't subscribe to Catholicism as an ideology but I went to Catholic school and I learned a weird alternative history of America because I went to Catholic school without realizing, and I only realized when I went to college, the American history I had learned was like this weird subculture thing where everything in American history was, you know, we went from like the colonial explorers who were French and Spanish and Italian because they were all Catholic. Right. And right. then it's kind of like John F. Kennedy. And, and then you jumped to 1962. Yeah, and be between that, it's like Catholics were just being constantly, you know, put to death or, you know, being discriminated against, etc. But we always learned about Roger Williams, Thomas Hooker, and Anne Hutchinson, who uh, Hooker founded Connecticut, was a religious freedom guy. Anne Hutchinson got chased out of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Roger Williams gave her sanctuary in Providence in Rhode Island. And it's like, that's the fucking great America. Like, you don't want Catholics to be in charge of the country, right. because no, the don't. minute they get a majority, they become really repressive. And yeah, this is part yeah, of the problem do. with the Supreme Court. It's all Catholic, yeah, that is a you know, etc. Um, but, <laughs> but, like, that impulse of you know, of like, we want to be free. People should be as free as possible to, to right. create the worlds they want to live in. Yeah, true. Yeah. I do, I do. And, I, 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 yeah. and I'm sorry, just to, to bring it to CRT. Yeah, is that, you know, I want, you know, I, I mean, I would prefer that the state not be involved in education, but assuming it is, I want different people to be able to have as many schools as possible that are telling their version of America. Because that's what, America is not one thing. America is kind of like it's a sandbox it's a platform where lots of different content creators get to yeah. create their story and as long as it's not going to crash the whole system right let it rip well know? i would i agree with that in principle in practice i believe that the crt um, like many other ideologies of the last eight years i don't think that's an organic from you know community based like this is how, how we want it to, I, that is an academically transmitted from the top through 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 in my mind sinister channels of yeah. of, of propaganda and and i you know yeah. i'm sympathetic to the absolute revulsion to crt i'm not sympathetic to the groomer panic thing at all because i think that's so i mean here for me like when we when it comes to education policy like the way around this is just that if you let people if you give people the ability to exit public schools or 
or the school that they are assigned to, right. this takes care of itself. Because then if you don't like CRT or whatever, you go somewhere else. And, and that there will be a flourishing market where there will be lots of alternatives. And I think that general dynamic can be applied to a lot of different elements of life. Um, you know, uh, you, we were talking before about kind of libertarian influences. Albert Hirschman was an economist, a political economist, not libertarian per se, but he wrote a book in the, uh, around 1970, early 70s, called Exit Voice and Loyalty. And it was it looked at how do you deal with um, firms like businesses, societies, states, nations that are in decline. And you can either, you can be loyal and become like a company man and you just do what you're told until everything goes to shit. Yeah. You use voice, you, you use whatever methods of reform are available to you and you speak up and you complain and you change the system from within or you exit and you just go, you leave and you create your own thing. And like it's a, uh, you know, it's a mix of those things, especially exit, which conditions voice and loyalty. That's, you know, that's the, the thing we want. And so like I'm a big, uh, when it, that, that book had a lot of influence on me. Like I like political systems and cultural systems and economic systems that allow people the right of exit. Right, right, yeah, right of exit. The Brexit plan. Yeah, I mean that. Kind of. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. That's, but, that's, but that's part of what, that's part of what the most grotesque element of the Soviet Union was, is that people weren't allowed to leave. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like when you yeah. see that people aren't allowed to exit, that's sort right, of the right. sign that yeah. shit has gone a little bit yeah, wrong. And, yeah, and this is, you know, like, in a Trumpian way, like, you know, the minute you're building a wall, like, you really, nobody, people don't build walls anymore to keep people out. It's kind of to keep people in. And certainly, like, the Berlin Wall, most famously, the East German government said, we're doing this because the West Germans are going to invade. Right, but right. And I think, in a way, like, in an America, when we are building a wall, ultimately, it's kind of like, it's not going to stop people from coming here. It's, it's, it's just a bad indicator that we're a country in decline and we're not yeah. facing that. And like a, a strong country doesn't worry about a lot of people coming into it. Well, they worry about you know, and a weak country worries yeah. about that and kind of. Well, we have be. been a weak country. Though. You yeah. know, we've been a weak country in this. I mean, when people, we we have not been. The border towns have not been doing great. You know, I mean, they, they this, have less crime and yeah. Well, I don't I mean yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it's whatever. Here's the, yeah. the, 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 the I don't want to get into an immigration yeah. argument because it's so so gnarly. But I do want to. I wanted to commend you because I don't know if this is your doing or whoever. But um, it seems like alone among DC publications on any side of yeah, the yeah. aisle, including the conservative ones, right. reason seems the most uh, to, the, the most agile in terms of avoiding Huron Trump derangement syndrome. The last, you know, and and like and so I wanted to commend you on that, and I wanted to kind of get your perspective on that because I lost my personal respect for just about every publication in DC and outside of DC. In terms of how, and, and and including the Cato Institute, yeah. for how just in lockstep they were with every with with all the mainstream, well, I, you know. And I, I mean, there, we have a you know a lot of different voices at Reason. We don't speak with one voice, or we don't have a house voice or anything. Right. And I also need to point out that since 2018, I've been an editor at large. So right. all of the good stuff that's happening is due to Catherine Mangu Ward, oh, uh, Jim Epstein, and other people. It's, she's are, up there. Yeah. She's, yeah. Some, she's the one yeah. of the nicest personalities I remember yeah. from my year in D.C. So, um, but having 
said all of that, like Trump, I think Trump ultimately was a destructive presence in American politics and remains so. But I do think people were like they lost their shit over him because they mistook his rhetoric for what actually was happening. Uh, they also mistook him, you know, as a cause of something when he's more of an effect of something. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump. Trump is the uh, understandable product of at least 20 years of uh, absolute hollowing out of trust and confidence in government and political institutions. You know, and it goes back much longer than this, but like, you know, with the 2000 election where, you know, it's a coin toss, it could have gone yeah. either way, um, but then people are acting as if, like, their person either won or lost in some kind of grand conspiracy, but then, you know, the Bush years hollowed out the Republican Party in a commitment to limited government, they were running secret wars, then not-so-secret wars, they blew out federal spending on social programs as much as on defense, uh, Obama, you know, came in and was going to be hope and change, and he wasn't going to be like Bush, but then it takes Edward Snowden to reveal yeah, you know, that he has a massive you know, surveillance program that he's lying about, and like, you know, about all sorts of stuff. You know, and, and it's like, oh, and then you think Trump is the problem, and it's right. like, no, like, you, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't win because she was terrible, not because Trump did any, you know, Russia helped Trump or anything. So like, Also, she was spying own, on him. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> She's fucking to, spying on him. As, as a country, we need to own that, like, Trump, Trump isn't something that happened to us. Like, we kind of created him. And now, like, Biden, this is also something, again, and I, I dislike Trump because of his, his stances, especially on immigration, which I'm revolted by, um, and free trade, I think it's awful, uh, you know, etc. But, like, we can't come to terms with how bad Biden is, because everybody, even, I think, Trump people were like, okay, when Trump's gone, there'll be some kind of bounce back to normalcy. And it's like, no, because it's a systemic problem. And the same system that coughed up Trump coughed up Biden, who is, you know, brain dead and incompetent and not up to the task. I mean, this is a guy who is reading teleprompter mistakes right you know like this is you know, know i mean i don't even know what to say when it comes to biden i'm like i'm like the speechless person where i'm like well are you is this what did you think was happening yeah. this is obvious this, yeah. is, this didn't just happen and again you know with things like inflation where you know and there's no question oh, libertarians have been you know chicken uh, chicken little on inflation forever right. but there was a logic there and it's like under trump and then under biden we went from spending in two 2019, the federal budget was 4.4 trillion. In 2021, it was 6.8 trillion. So we increased federal spending by 50% in two years. And it's like you don't think inflation is going to happen, you know. Plus the Fed, etc. Like, you know, we're we're not we're not grappling with the larger systemic problems of a failed no. government. I will say that the thing that Trump, un, uh, um, without any sort of I think ambiguity was much better on than any of the previous presidents for a while was his actual his actual interest in avoiding wars versus I mean you know to, I mean to the point where you know no one knows you know my feeling is that if you were in office this Russia Ukraine thing would have 
been different. I, I mean, that's, yeah. Well, not, yeah, I find that uh, it's, it's very pure. Yeah. It's pure focus, yeah. focus. But I, based on his act, the way he operated with North Korea, the way he operated with pretty much everyone, yeah. you know, Saudi Arabia and Israel. I mean, that whole shit. I mean, yeah, yeah. these have been all swept under the rug yeah. because it's unpopular to like Trump. Right, but there right. are major achievements from a libertarian perspective. It's also true. I mean, like you know, the whole Russia alone is responsible for an illegal and immoral invasion of Ukraine. But it's also true American foreign policy since World War II, you know, helped contribute to a situation, uh, you know, where the way NATO expansion went, right. that created problems. The EU should have brought Turkey in in the late 90s. That, you know, there's so many different ways in which, um, you know, this was a long time coming. Yeah, it was kind but, of... But Biden is not the guy you want to... He's not going to have you to... He's not going to damage control the situation yeah. with any sort of alacrity. And here we are. I've heard that food, food, the food problem is going to become quite real for us within a year. I'm not... I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I'm, but I'm kind of anti-apocalyptic. I, I, I hate... I don't like... I'm not... I'm, I'm the last person to be yeah. apocalyptic, but I'm just... Yeah. It's obvious that you have a problem like this yeah. happening in the world. It's going to create... I uh, do hope ripples. for the United States. I mean, uh, and I think there's a similarity to the 70s, which I kind of remember. The economy is in better shape than it was in the 70s, although there's problems. Government policy is problematic, but it's also important from a specifically libertarian perspective. People, and especially libertarians, said the 70s were terrible because the economics were fucked up in the 70s, like government policy was bad. But having said that, the 70s were also this incredible decade of individualism. You know, gay liberation, feminism, uh, you know, free speech, really. Great you know, movies. Mainline. Yeah, no, I mean, there was yeah. a lot of lifestyle liberation that happened. So on a day-to-day -day level, more people were able to live how they chose to, and they were inventing new forms. Right. Many of them were destructive, but it was a discovery process. Right. And I think one of the things that we need now, like we're in a very pessimistic age and era and I think what we you know what we need is a rebirth of individualism which pushes back against the worst elements of religious collectivism on the right but also wokeism on the left yeah. and like to recognize more that we're individuals than markers of big groups and things like that and uh, you know to the extent that the libertarian project now versus like reason can talk about that and kind of talk about you know the proliferation of options and choices and how to increase that and how to live in a world where everybody is more comfortable with people having more choices, including ones you don't agree with, that's a better world. Yeah, and it's the, the parallel is interesting. I mean, I consider my pro this project to be in in uh, in league with the overall, you know, 1970s to 20s uh, to 2020s, like this this period of experimentation we're in, because we've seen all, just about every infra cultural infrastructure we know crumble. Right. Um, and so, for from a, from even from an artistic perspective, that's the reason I started to do this, and the reason I do yeah. it in a way that's kind of uh, cinematic without the images um, and the reason I seek out as many interesting people from all over the fucking place whether I know them whether they're known not known whatever like that I that I deem to be interesting um, I, I feel like we're in this period where we're figuring out a completely new world I culturally yes. economically rules are rule I mean you know, things like that are always going to kind of operate in the same uh, with the same rotation yes, I, I agree with you yeah, from earlier in our conversation where you were saying like there are certain kinds of tropes and uh, you know obeisances paid to diversity or you know 
the correct attitudes about everything. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, like there is a massive amount of really high quality TV and film and video literature, uh, you know, and it's, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because like I, I cheer the demise of older cultural institutions that never did anything for me, like, right. you know, Random House or traditional publishing or right. movie studios or fucking record labels, like, right. you know, and some of them perform functions, right. like they did find people and develop them and bring their work to the masses, yeah. but right now it's like we've got some of that going on still, and then we have this massive exodus where right. lots of people can do whatever they want. And that's well, that's a, good. it's totally it's totally good. I mean, I, you know, I, I've started this only a few months ago, and I'm, and it's like it's not impossible to imagine a point where I have enough Patreon subscribers where it's it's almost my main thing. Like it's not that far, it's not that based on the what's happened since. And I know for others others for whom it is, they are making yeah. their living yeah. literally just being themselves, right. you know, and being talented and interesting, but. Yeah. But with no institutional support, right? Or you know, just out of the ether, and I'm, I'm trying to you know examine what is it that what does it take to? Yeah. Because it's one thing to just do what you want. It's another thing to make a living right. at it. It's another thing yeah, to make yeah. a cultural impact uh, yeah. at it. And and these are the questions that are left unanswered. Also, of course, the main the corpses of the mainstream institutions are going to try and emulate as they have been already. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. there have been shows already that are like downstream from. Twitter personality uh, yeah. influence. It's like, it's sure. crazy. I mean, sure, I'm sure you watched White Lotus or yeah. you know about it. Similarly, I mean, right. Mike White's an, he's, he's, an, he's a smart guy. So yeah. he's a, um, yeah. But it's it's definitely, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a black pillar. Yeah, I'm not yeah. a doomsayer. Yeah. And I, so, you know, when I'm making, when I'm sort of like, I'm just sort of analyzing what I call the Liptar tens and yeah. hoping to put that away in that last decade. Yeah, and yeah. I'm hoping that we're coming out of this yeah. horrible pandemic uh, lockdown thing yeah, yeah. nightmare with with a, com a new lease on life. That's my that's what I'm committed to. How old are you? Thirty seven. Okay, yeah. So you're I mean you're a millennial. A millennial. I'm like and a right. You, yeah, you. Uh, you I know, fucking graduated in uh, 07, Went right. to DC for my internships. 0708, Depressing as. I mean that's yeah, why yeah, I say yeah. it turned me gay. I mean I met like DC was so yeah. depressing. Yeah. And, I, no, I, and, I, and that I mean DC is the the last place to get. You know, the California Pizza Kitchen ends up yeah. like nothing yeah. starts in DC. <laughs> right. Um, it is the legacy of legacies. You know, it doesn't have any creative destruction going on because it's politics. It's all Paul. Everyone was so yeah. one-dimensional there. I mean, you guys were more fun because your reason. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's true that like you, you know, you graduated into like a terrible world. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking my my older brother who's he was born in '59, so whatever. Yes. '63. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Um, but he graduated college in 81, which at the time was like, all of the news stories were this was, the, there was a huge recession, and it was the worst year for college graduates since the Depression or something. Yeah. And it was like, wow, and I, I'm four years younger than him. When I graduated in 85, all that was it done. It was all like, everybody forgot. So these things can change rapidly. Yeah. But, you know, and that's, um, what had happened was that there was a, a sloughing off of a certain amount of, you know, just old skin. And I think this, we're going through a prolonged version
version of that. Yeah. And, you know, it will be interesting to see what are the new forms and the new normal that come out over yeah. the next couple of years. Because I, I believe in, I, I sometimes talk about the long 20th century, which starts with Bismarck's social welfare state in Germany right. in the late 19th century. And we're still in it. Like, we haven't given up a lot of this 20th century institutions. It's political institutions, cultural institutions, mental ways of thinking about stuff. And like, in many ways, we have achieved a libertarian escape velocity where, as individuals, we're more free than ever. And we look at that, and it's like, holy shit, we are in Minecraft. We can do whatever we, we can build. It's a blank slate. Or like, that scares the shit out of me. And we're clinging we're to this old stuff. Yeah. Um, and it worries me because I think younger people are have not been developed. And I mean, I'm, I'm a parent of two, of a millennial and a Zoomer. Yeah. You know, and like we, you know, we need to develop more psychological resiliency among young people. Uh, you mentioned Nathaniel Brandon. Right. Fascinating. When you, he did a great interview with Reason in the early 70s. I remember that classic yeah. interview. Part yeah. of his part of his project, and within the libertarian movement before it became much more heavily focused on economics, it was a lot of psychologists involved, and they were talking about like what you know as we emerge into more freedom. Um, you know, what are the types of people who do well? Like, what is the psychology of freedom? Like, what individuals flourish with when they're faced with a lot of choices? And how do we develop more of that? Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's a really important sense of, like, American society right now. Because people have, you know, you can be whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. You know, but if you don't have the mental uh, kind of framework to deal with that, that's a lot to ask of people. You know, it's psychologically paralyzing and yeah. a lot of people don't know what they want. Yeah. And, well, and it's a discovery. I mean, yeah. what I wanted in my 20s is not what I want in my 50s. No, right. Yeah. yeah. And and I think a lot of it, I mean, cert, like I've stated this out loud, which is that like, I feel like if you, if you have a problem with how things have been and with, if you have a desire to, for the world, for, to, to crap, to sort of leave your imprint on the world in a certain way, you have to act. Yeah. You have to do it. You have to like, you have to stake your claim. Right. That's kind of been one part of like that. That's like a, an expressed mission for me. It's it's an expressed mission for me in terms of living in Los Angeles. I've had this like I've been obsessed with this idea of defining Los Angeles my way. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of part of this. You know, this is we're we're not there now, but it's part of the the world of my podcast. And in in all ways, I feel like now we play by other people's rules up till now. We saw that those rules led us where they let us if we if we have a big mouth and if we have if we have uh, if we have uh, big ideas you, you, we have to kind of insist on them and like with through action and that's what I'm kind of hoping to I'm hoping that that becomes the theme of the 2020s and I'm hoping that I think what there is is there is a people crave authority they, whether they say they like it or not, they crave some source of authority. Right. Be it internal, be it like local, yeah, be yeah. it I, I hopefully not, you know, uh, from fucking from the president yeah. or some some you know uh, yeah. global leader. That's always the worst kind of authority to depend yeah, yeah. on. But they need authority. They want they want to be able to look at an H. L. Mencken who's telling them, hey, fuck you guys. You can actually do some fucking literature so, in America. You don't have to yeah. look at Europe every yeah, time. Yeah, now which is uh, an important thing. I was in America. I have a PhD in American literature. Right. 
right. term. And in the late you know in the late 80s, like that was a moment when Americanists, for better or for worse, and the field was kind of fucked up. But they were like, we don't need to constantly be rooting around for the American Shakespeare or the American Milton. It's right. like we don't have to explain ourselves. Our literature is important because it reflects and explains America, which is the most important country in the world. And it was yeah. like very liberating. Yeah. Like not, and it doesn't mean that like you don't care about what came before, but it's like you're no longer in a culturally inferior place and you're right. taking responsibility. I was going to say, as you were talking, you know, there was a techno-hippie libertarian project in the late 60s uh, in places like the Whole Earth Catalog. And it doesn't map perfectly onto contemporary libertarian politics, but Stuart Brand, you know, who founded the Whole Earth Catalog in 68, the same year Reason was founded, the founding statement was, we are as gods and we better get good at it. And that is, we are still there. And like what the Whole Earth Catalog did was it gave people tools for living. Like it, it was literally a catalog of stuff you could buy to create your own commune right. or your urban farm and all kinds of stuff. And it had commentary and art and it kind of fleshed out what would a world be like where you didn't have, you weren't inheriting your parents' prejudices and your parents' views towards work or their factory jobs. Like you were free. Right. To, the world was a canvas and here's the tools that you can use to paint whatever you want right we're still there and we need we need to refresh that and update that and look to the future because yeah. we're much better off than we were then materially and I think psychologically and you know it's like it's a I used to get into arguments that when I became the editor of reason in 2000 and I was like a lot of older libertarians were like you know the government is bigger than ever we therefore we are less free and I was kind of like you know fuck you like culturally yeah. I can read more of what I want. I can produce more of what I want. If I'm, I can live with the person I want. I can sleep with whoever. Like we are so much more free. You can get me too by anybody. That is right. Right. Yeah. But you can eat food that was on a mat. You can create. You right. Know, and like that's all still there. No. We have to acknowledge. You that have to and look on that. Yeah. You, know? you have to look at the. You have to look at the opportunities that are yeah. there and not. And obviously not get depressed at the ones that have yeah. disappeared or that are currently in cages or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I also believe that there's a... One of the things I hate the most about the censorship woke thing is how it erased history. And I think that history... I mean, when I say history... Yeah, in I mean, the name of... In the name uh, of... In the name of ameliorating historical... Right. Just er, Yeah, just erased it straight up. And, like, yeah. so people don't even know now what Mencken was kind of complaining about a little bit, which yeah. is, like, how... How much Puritan, um, how much Puritan righteousness there was behind the abolition movement, for example? Right. Like you know, that that's been totally. If you ask a typical woke person, there was no abolition movement. It was all yeah. about economics, or they have yeah, some yeah. stupid explanation for for the Civil War. Or it's a, not, it's a different form of white supremacy. Yeah, it's a different form. Yeah, it's like, like it's everything's white, white supremacy. Yeah, they have everything explained in this gloomy, stupid little, completely ignorant way. Yeah. And so history is full of tools for you. Like if you. If you're, like that's another thing. So it's not just about like blank slate, open canvas. It's about discover the tools that are there um, throughout history this great is, civilization. History, you know, it's like going to your parents' attic or basement or grandparents, and you get to 
rummage around and there's an infinite amount of interesting shit there that you can use to make your life more meaningful and interesting and future-oriented. Like, yeah. I mean, that, to me, and this, there's a version of it on the right and there's one on the left, of like presentism where the world began the minute when I turned eight years old or 10 or 20 or whatever. And like, you know, yeah. we need to, you know, it's, it's a dark irony that we have, you know, because of the internet and because of YouTube and because we have at our fingertips, we have every movie, every record, every book ever made. And we like, we don't avail ourselves of it. We're less interested in the past than ever. What a sad irony. It is sad. We're, we're all, we're digitally addicted, basically. We're like, we're just, we're just, ref re yeah, refreshing, we're refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. And that, and uh, that's kind of the, uh, I mean, what's the one way to beat the house uh, in, 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 in a game where the odds are stacked against you? It's have photographic memory right. and to count the cards. It's the only way to beat the house. Now that's good. So I was going to say, don't play that well, game. Well, don't play is yeah. one way, but hey, we don't want to be doomers. Yeah. We don't want to. Right. We want to yeah. play. So you got to. I mean, I'm. You know, it's just. A, I'm just. It's just a, a little, a funny little yeah. metaphor that that is the only way in these fucking games. To do you play? Do you gamble at all? No, I don't. I, I wish I. It's among the vices that I just don't find interesting. Right. I, I like poker, but that's because it's a game against other yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, you know, poker and sports gambling because I can delude myself into thinking that I have an edge. But the table game. Are just a nice little way of getting slowly raped out of your money. Yeah. And you know, I'm 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 impressed that they were invented. I'm impressed right. that we invented a, a game where it's like, hey, by the way, you can give me your money, right. and it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> but but that, but you know, life is interesting that way. Before we conclude, do you have, is there are, is there anything you're personally kind of looking forward to? For yourself, your career, uh, your next—you you, know—you've done a great job with Reason TV. You've, you've found all these interesting people and interviewed them. I don't know if you're still doing that yourself. Yeah, you are. I could recommend some people too that are quite—you know—like always I, I, interested to hear. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know what? I—I I mean, I am endlessly fascinated by the future um, because it's—you know—my when I think about. Uh, you know, so my, my parents were born in the 1920s. I was born in the 1960s. My kids were born in the early 90s and the early 2000s. And, like, the world is so totally different, you know, in each of those iterations. Yeah. I am desperate to see what comes next. And, I, and hopefully to influence a little bit in the direction of expanded choice and freedom and options for people. Right. Because, I, you know, in this, for me, it's the one benefit, I think, one benefit of growing up lower middle class, a literally a generation, my grandparents all moved to America in the 19-teens. Brooklyn, right? Uh, well, they, they moved to New York. Yeah. I ended up being born, born in Brooklyn, but um, they were removed from farms and, like, villages where for a thousand years they were peasants and serfs, and they moved to what are objectively shitty circumstances, but were relatively much better than where they came from. My parents grew up poor in the Depression. My father fought in World War II. He was wounded. And, like, his in his lifetime, he went from stark poverty to, like, 
like um, affluent middle class, ersatz middle class experience. I'm doing so much phenomenally better. I think my kids are going to do better still. And like, what a great world. And like, how do we keep that going? How do we keep expanding progress, material progress, intellectual progress, moral progress, technological progress? And where does it go? Like, because I don't believe in an afterlife. So I want to. I want to be here. You're for an apatheist, right? An apatheist. Apatheist, yeah, right? Like I, and I just religion is. I mean, I, I respect religion and the role that it plays in history and people's lives. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But I just don't. Um, it just it, hasn't it's not effect, affected you. Yeah, it hasn't affected you. Um, so yeah, what I'm looking forward to is actually the emergence and identification of these new institutions. You know, political, economic, cultural. Social, whatever that are that need to be formed because we are we're living in the ruins of the past, right? And we need to we need to build our own mansions, right? You know, and, and move into them and occupy them and kind of work them into the ground, and then we'll go on from there, right? And w one last question, because you're from New York and you're also half Italian, um, do you, are you have you uh, connected at all with Camille Paglia? Yeah, yeah, no, I've interviewed her a number of oh. times, and we have a very nice rapport. Um, and it's funny because she doesn't look, uh, you know, anything like my Italian family. But it's, you know, yeah, we, we know each other. Right. right. And she, she's like a much smarter, thinner, more lesbian version of my mother. <laughs> Uh, and, that's, and that's very it's very right. nice when I check in with her my mother died decades ago so it's like it's, a, it's uh, that's you know nice. and I have that same feeling with judge Andrew Napolitano right to be quite honest right it's just it, yeah it's, it's something deep in the substrate yeah that's just sometimes those yeah. bloodlines connect like that and uh, you know Polya by the way is I adore fantastic her. I think she has become pessimistic uh, too pessimistic mm -hmm. but um, but what a powerful influence she was also sexual persona <clears throat> came out when I entered grad school and it was this lightning rod of a book. Uh, people either loved it or hated it and I disagree ultimately with a kind of archetypal criticism that is at the basis of her practice and project. But what a great fucking book and it's, it's like, incredible. you know, that, that book it's like what people say about the uh, you know the Velvet Underground's first record or the Ramones. It's like you know, you, you might not like it but you went home and you, you were like I gotta start my own band. I gotta right. start my own album. Right. Sexual persona is like that, and I think it 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 just in, invigorated so many people to be like, okay, I gotta do my own. Yeah, it's like you just discovered a new electricity when yeah. you read that book. I was lucky that I found it uh, at 18. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I had already been, I was already clued in. I was, I think I saw her on book TV yeah, for yeah, the first time, fantastic. which was great. Yeah. My, one of my favorite programs of all time. But I'm glad. I mean, I adore her. I would die to interview her one day before before she uh, she, she, she dives too deep into that Native American uh, uh, research project she's been doing for 10 years mysteriously that we're all waiting for. Um, well, Nick, it was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so thank much you. for you. for your time, for getting me in here, and for introducing me to John. I should yeah, probably yeah, find him. Does he live in L.A.? Yeah. Okay, he's, he's in Malibu. Uh, uh, two quick things. Yeah. Uh, have you interviewed Art Tavana? 
No. He, uh, he's a good guy. Look him up. Art Tavana. I've heard of I, inter- I podcasted with him, a, I don't know, like a year ago. He wrote a great book about Guns N' Roses, but he's, I think he's doing an MA now in creative writing at like UC Davis or, or um, Irvine or something, but he's in the area. You might get along with him. Okay. He's um, um, Iranian-American. He grew up in the Valley, and he oh, okay. he's kind of conservative, kind of libertarian, and he's just, a, he's a great culture critic. Okay, uh, great. I'll have to. Guns N' Roses book is great. He's aggressively heterosexual in a way that might work or rub you the wrong way. I like aggressive heterosexuality. He, he wrote, uh, he was a columnist for like the LA Weekly or, or something like that, yeah. LA Reader or something, and for Playboy, and he wrote like frankly about the sexual allure of people like Lana Del Rey, and then people were like, hey, you're saying the quiet part out loud, and like he was verboten, and it's like... Well, that'll, my, yeah. you see, I'm, I'm less of a Lana, my friends, in right. the, especially my podcast friends, are obsessed with Lana, and yeah. especially her sexual allure, so yeah. that alone is like, that. I have to, you know, that, yeah, that'll I mean, be... He's, a, he's an interesting guy, and the news. other person I was going to say, you might, if you like Camille Paglia, uh, well, two things, there's a guy named Noah Rothman who just wrote a book called The Lies of the New Puritans, okay. and it, this, if you if you like the Mencken yeah. Puritan thing, I mean, this book just came out, I just released the podcast with him yesterday. I saw it on your Twitter, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, check him out, check right. that book out, you'll like it a lot. Yeah, I'll he might talk be, to him. He's, he writes for commentary, but he's a really smart, good faith conservative. Oh, you, you might I've like had him. a piece of commentary about Otto Preminger way back oh, in wow. the day. Oh. I've written for all the conservative think, publications. Did we engage, because uh, like, I, I think Otto Preminger is the shittiest director. Interesting. He, like, he took great, like, he started with great properties or great ideas, and, like, all of his movies pretty much suck. That's really, you have yeah. a very, that's a very Gen X view, I think, of Otto Preminger, yeah. because he was a, he was known for coming in and at budget. He re, His very first yeah, movie, no, no, no. he replaced the great Armenian uh, Reuven Mamoulian yeah. uh, from Laura, right. right, because he was going Which over budget. Which is also but, a terrible movie. You don't like, I, 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 we have a different view. How many times does that movie have to end before you can leave I watched, the I fucking watched all his movies on, at the AFI Silver Springs oh, yeah, big yeah, screen yeah, yeah. while that one year, yeah. my one bright yeah. spot in D.C. Uh, there was another bright spot in D.C. I wanted to, before I forgot, what was I going to uh, ask you about D.C. related? Oh, I was going to ask you if Washington City Paper still exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my only so. other bright spot was that I did a cover I did a cover story for them that, during that year. Who was editing it then? Was it uh, it was Wemple. Yeah. 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 Who's it's, now, it's a really good culture. Uh, I should uh, reconnect with him. It's because he also defended I what I did it was a review of all the college newspapers in the area like oh, the six great. main yeah, ones yeah, yeah. and I made fun of them I was yeah, very yeah. I roasted okay. all of them comedically yeah. it was like 5,000 were things some of them got pissed off yeah, one yeah. of them was like David Aldridge the TNT NBA guy who was like yeah, from yeah. American University whatever mm-hmm. wrote a nasty thing but Wemple defended me oh, so I was appreciative of that you know yeah. I'll, I'd like to I'll I have to connect I think it's still kicking um, but barely barely um, but yeah Jack uh, uh, what's Jack his name? Schaefer was the previous. Yeah, he's, he's a big uh, uh, friend of mine. and uh, He's great. I love him. Yeah. I, uh, here, I'll tell you a funny story about him that uh, um, I, I can, you know, I, I would say I've had like two mentors in my life. And when I went to Rutgers College in New Jersey, and the guy who was the head of the daily newspaper that I wrote for the arts section, yeah, uh, was this guy named David Aaron Clark, who was big and fat. And we used to call him the Dave Clark Five, which was, you know, the way you're mean to people when you're younger. Uh, but he... He really helped me like think about things when I was an undergrad. He 
was older. And then he went on to become a pornographer. Uh, he actually uh, worked with John or uh, Saliano yeah. um, and died young from a heart attack because he was like a big fat shit. Um, but I was at a, um, I, I used to judge at the National Magazine Awards and I was at lunch with a bunch of people and they were all talking about, oh, how did you get into journalism? And they're like, oh, well, you know, I worked for like David Remnick at the Daily Whatever, right. whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, my, you know, my college newspaper editor became, he, he left, he left college and then he became the letters editor at Screw Magazine. And uh, then he became a vampire in uh, in the New York vampire scene in the uh, 80s and no 90s. Shit. Where people, he would, like, women would cut him on stage and suck his blood. And then he ended up as a Japanese fetish pornographer. Uh, but my other mentor, too, if I have one, is Jack Schaefer, right. who was supposed to come to the PGR Rourke Memorial that was at, in D.C. at the Cosmopolitan Club or the Metropolitan yeah. Club. Very fancy, stuffy old place. And Schaefer got turned away because he's wearing blue jeans. Oh, my God. And I was from like, these are O'Rourke, my mentors. Yeah. From a PJ yeah. O'Rourke Memorial. Yeah. And he was like, because it said you have to wear a jacket and tie, so he wore a jacket and tie, but he wore Real jeans. jeans. Uh, but Jack is great, and I think he's he is the like, best media critic uh, or media critic in working today yeah. I mean really fantastic. he's been since I was a you know since yeah. like 15 years and he ago. his first paying job in journalism was at Inquiry Magazine which was a Cato competitor to reason in the early 80s he's like an old line libertarian guy and he actually the first thing he did in print he wrote a letter to the editor when Darby Crash of the Germs died uh, of a heroin overdose uh-huh. the Germs was this nihilistic band in the early uh, late 70s early yeah. 80s that Pat Spear was in and uh, Crash uh, died of a heroin overdose and um, uh, the uh, LA Times published the or they said he died of a heroin overdose and Schaefer wrote in to point out that actually he died from the impurities mixed with the heroin not the heroin <laughs> he's, he's the best he's always been really funny yeah. and uh, I've always nice. really enjoyed him and I always loved the fact I, I wanted to write I wanted to I was so well, the reason I was actually so honored to have written that cover story for City Papers because yeah. it was his, it was yeah, yeah. I, I associated with him. Yeah, yeah. So okay. that was an and honor. He, yeah, he was succeeded by David Carr, who then went on to the New York Times, uh, and then and then Wemple came Wemple. in. Yeah. And now I don't know. I don't know who the editor is. It's still around to a degree, but it's all of, all the all weeklies are. On the yeah, they're vanishing. Side. I know somebody who's bought up a bunch of them, including LA Weekly, trying to revive. But yeah, we'll yeah. see where that goes. There's a role for that. Um, well, the Village Voice yeah. too. There's this yeah, one yeah. guy. That's a diff- he's like a libertarian gay guy. That's a long story. My friend works. Um, okay, so we should stop talking right now. The other guy I was going to say is there's a, an anthropologist named Graham McCracken. Uh, Google his name and look up his book Attitude. Okay. If you like sexual persona, he was doing something very similar. Okay. Um, and uh, but it was more positive ultimately than than her. Okay. I'll know and everything. Great. Yeah. Thank Thanks you a lot, Nick. It's all really right. for doing it all kind of, you know, impromptu like I'm this. Happy to do so. Thank you. Thank you. John, I want to connect so that I can hit you up in LA and do maybe something by myself. And are you okay with the, our interaction being published? Published? Yeah. You want to know if I want to protect my intellectual property rights? Yeah. No, I am going to say anything you want about me. I'm not going to. I'm not going to insult you. It was true. 
Oh, oh history. Oh, yeah, yeah. no. But, well, I'd like to do one. I'd like to do a one-on-one uh, more fully. But you know, this is, it's a nice little part of the scenery. How are you going to monetize? I have a subscription based. It's on Patreon. You know Patreon? I have a sub- Patreon. Yeah. So I have, you know, not a large number of subscribers, but but they're passionate about the show. So it's a good start. I am always interested in talking because I like to talk. However, I think I've become I've never been canceled, but I'm not. Like, I go. I, I. Everyone is allowed in my world. In the filthy Armenian world, there's nobody who's canceled. So, yeah, I'm not. I'm not afraid of associating. I mean, I'll, I'll, I can. I've got a car. I can use it as a cab. I could use my Infinity as a cab. Nice to meet you, John. I'll be in touch. Mr. Irving Berlin often emphasizes sin in a charming way. Mr. Coward, we know, wrote a song or two to show sex was here to stay. Richard Rogers, it's true, took a more romantic view of this sly biological urge, but it really was Cole who contrived to make the whole thing merge. He said that Belgians and Greeks do it. Nice young men who sell antiques do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Monkeys, whenever you look, do it. Ali Khan and King Farouk, do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Luella Parsons can't quite do it. But she's so highly strung. Marlena might do it. But she looks far too young. Each man out there shooting crap does it. Davy Crockett in that dreadful cap does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. All famous writers in swarms do it. Some are certain all the moms do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The Brontes felt that they must do it. Ernest Hemingway could just do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. E. Allen Poe, ho, 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 did it. But he did it in verse. H. Beecher Stowe did it. But she had to rehearse. Tennessee Williams, self-taught, does it. Kinsey with a deafening report, does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. In the spring of the year, inhibitions disappear and our hearts beat high. We had better face facts, every gland that overacts has an alibi. For each bird and each bee, each slap happy sappy tree, each temptation that lures us along is just nature elman, merely singing us the same old song. In Texas, some of the men do it. Others drill a hole and then do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. West Point cadets forming fours do it. People say all those gabars do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. My kith and kin more or less do it. Every uncle and aunt. But I confess to it. I've one cousin that can't. 
Teenagers squeezed into jeans do it. Probably will live to see machines do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Each baby bat after dark does it. In the desert, Wilbur Clark does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. We're told that every hormone does it. Victor Borger all alone does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Each tiny clam you consume does it. Even Liberace we assume does it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love.